Okay, we are here. We are back. It's been a while. I know, I'm sorry. I'm actually on a plane from the United States back to Israel. Yes, I can do that. I'm an Israeli citizen. I'm going to have to quarantine at home for a week when I get back. I'm actually kind of looking forward to that. Uh, not in the sense that I won't be able to like really come into contact, but uh, having spent the week in the States, that I had a great time and I attended a conference and I met all kinds of cool people, uh, but I really, didn't, uh, I really didn't get a whole lot of work done. So during the next week, I'll be able to get more work done. But as tonight, I'm flying from the 23rd of December into the 24th of December. Tomorrow night is what's known as, well, it's Christmas Eve, but it's what's known in Jewish sources as Nittelnacht. I would like to describe a little bit, I would like to discuss a little bit what's going on there. Uh, I know that I've been a little bit delinquent. I haven't recorded a podcast in a week and a half. Uh, hopefully I'll, you know, I'll drop this on uh, Friday morning so that people can listen to it before Nittelnacht. Um, obviously this is <laughs> not Lomaisa, but uh, um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll discuss Nittelnacht specifically. Uh, the funny thing is, the funny thing about Nittelnacht is that there's a misconception, there's a major misconception, and it's a kind of funny misconception about Nittelnacht. Um, uh, a friend, Yedid uh, Nafshi, Chaim Seiman, sent me something that somebody sent him, a, uh, you know, a, a little how-to sheet from, that was sent out, you know, today, Arab Shabbos, uh, Arab Shabbos, Parshish most Tavshin Teves, that's, that's now, uh, from a place called Machon Halacha Chabad, uh, a little sheet about what to do. Um, now, I'm going to tell a true story, and it's a true story. There are all kinds of stories about Nittelnacht and what various people, various Hasidim used to do. You know, it's famously, there was one, one Rebbe, I can't remember who, used to cut toilet paper for an entire year, because, you know, for, for use on Shabbos, because um, you got to do something, you want to do something productive, but you don't want to do something that's, um, you know, it's going to be Bittel Torah, so that's like the, the ultimate Bittel Torah. Um, it's also famous that in Chabad, which is considered more of a cerebral Lamdish, Lamdanish type of, uh, type of, uh, I mean, literally, Chabad, Chachmobinadas. It's, it's obviously, it's, it's cerebral and it's about the, the cerebrum, the mind, um, controlling and ex- coming to expression, coming to fruition through action. Um, so they, the stories go, on Nittelnacht used to play chess. So there's, I actually once asked a friend of mine, who's a Chabad rabbi, a Chabad shliach, if you know a little bit about where I spent time over the years, you'll know, you might be able to take a good guess as to, as to who I'm talking about. I once asked him, so are you gonna, are you gonna play kids? Are you gonna play risk? So, ugh, I just messed it up. I gave away the punchline. Are you gonna, are you gonna play chess with your kids tonight? He's like, why? And I was like, Nittel. And he's like, oh, right, Nittel. Um, no, we didn't play chess. Like, when I was in Yeshiva, we didn't play chess. We played something else. I was like, what did you play? I said, 
he thinks for a second, and he's like, I think we played Risk. And I was thinking, wow, that's like the most Chabad game ever. What? World Conquest, you're all over the world, all over the map. Um, and then I had this, like, funny idea that, like, you know, when it comes time for a shliach to decide, for, to decide where a shliach's going to go, you do, like, a, a girl gra type thing. I know the gra and Chabad were not... Uh, um, not on the same page, but uh, you know, you, you pick a card out of a de- out of a out of a risk deck, um, you know, and you know, I guess it stinks to get to be the guy that gets Kamchatka. Anyhow, so this Machon Halacha Chabad sends out a thing. What to do? You know, like Nittelnach falls out on Shabbos. So first thing is that you know. Which which Nittelnacht are we talking about? Are we talking about the um, the Nittel of most denominations, which is you know in which uh, it's the 24th going into the 25th, or are you talking about uh, um, the Orthodox, not the Jewish Orthodox, the Roman Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, um, which is it's a it's in a couple of weeks. Those those churches never accounted for the Gregorian shift, much like. Uh, much like Halacha never accounted for the Gregorian shift. Um, that's why a couple of weeks ago communities in Chutzlarets began to say St. Uh, Halumatar only on December 5th because I mean, if you look in the Rishonim, if you look in even in the Shulchan Aral, kind of the Beis Yosef, the Tor, the Vudraham, uh, you'll see it's, it talks about like the 22nd of November or thereabouts maybe the 21st, maybe the 23rd, it says that that's the date that you start to say, say, tell them If you look at a calendar, you know, that's not what we do. That's, that's not what people do. That's because we never accounted for the Gregorian shift. We still count a year as though, a solar year, as though it's exactly 365 and one quarter days. In truth, we know it's a little bit less. Uh, so in the 1500s, Pope Gregory the, the head of the Catholic Church said we need to do something about it and they shaved about 10 days off of the calendar they skipped 10 days and ever since then they've taken out three leap years per uh, per 400 years so um, which means that three days every 400 years you know the the, the Saint Alumata gets put forward three days and the difference between the Catholic and Protestant Christmas on one hand and the Orthodox Christmas on the other hand, the gap between them grows by another three days. So in the year 2100, um, the St. Halamatar will be on the 20... will will be... the St. Halamatar will be... people will begin saying the St. Halamatar and Chutzlaret, if they're still Jews in Chutzlaret by then, in 2100, in, 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 uh, on uh, December 6th, and in uh, and Nittelnacht, if it's observed in areas where Russian Orthodox Christianity is practiced, um, will be a day later. I think it's September 7th now, now it will be pushed off to the 8th, if based. Um, I don't know. I just don't know. I'm not holding in the calendar, and obviously I'm recording this from a place without Wi-Fi. Okay. 
Um, I haven't gone through this whole thing, but uh, you know, the first halacha that they say in this uh, in this Chabad sheet is, um, you know, it depends on minogamakom, meaning the minog of the of the local gayim. If the local Christians are, you know, observe mainly the twenty uh, the twenty fifth of December, then you go with you know, then you observe nittel on the eve of that Christmas. If they if they do it on a different time, then you do it. Then you do it then. Okay. And what if nittel falls out on on Arab Shabbos? Okay. That's that's what they deal with. I'm not going to deal with. Um, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to deal with Nitl Shachalios for Shabbos. Rather, I want to talk about some of the prehistory. Now, it's funny, and this is the funny part. This is what I think is really interesting. If you ask anyone today, what's Nitl? Who observes Nitl? Who keeps Nitl? They'll say, Chasidim keep it. Litvox don't. Chasidim keep it. Litvox don't. Litvaks don't hold from Nittle. They learn. And that's probably true. And Hasidim keep it. Yeah, I mean, some do. In Eretz Yisrael, there are a lot of Hasidim that don't, just because they hold that, you know, there's there's not enough of a uh, Christian presence in Eretz Yisrael to warrant it. But, um, you know, there are places that are, you know, there are places where there were both Catholics and uh, Orthodox places like Ukraine, um, Romania, and in those places there were people that actually kept two days. They were very machmer. They didn't learn Torah on those two days. Very machmer. Um, now there are people that are machmer. Obviously, there are people that are machmer not to not to learn Torah on any night of the whole year. Um, very, very machmer. Big chumra. Big, big chumra. You'd never know when Christmas is. Um, but uh, what could we do? We, we, we aren't so machmer. So, so people will tell you, yes, chasidim, kitnetl, litvaks don't. Aye, what about all the other kinds of Jews? Well, I don't know. Most of them, I guess, don't keep it, right? No, that's not right. The first records that we have, meaning they're obviously in the halacha, in the Sechazot Zara, you have all kinds of halachos that deal with uh, Yemei Edom, that deal with um, non-Jewish holidays, with pagan holidays, or, or uh, holidays of various other religions, Zoroastrianism, or Christianity. We can ask my brother, some, my brother-in-law someday about Zoroastrianism. Maybe we'll Maybe we'll have him here on the show to talk about Zoroastrian holidays if it's ever no gaya. Um, you know, so there is discussion in these sorts of things, like in these sorts of, you know, there are halakhic discussions about what can and cannot be done on on Christian holidays. So Christian holidays, in the sense that all, you know, holidays of the surrounding non-Jews are. Are significant days on the Jewish calendar, but you know, and you know, so so through the period of from the Gemara through the period of Rishonim, you have you have discussions of this, and in the Rishonim, you already have discussions specifically of Christmas, and it's actually that's where the name Nittel comes from, and you know, what's the origin of the name Nittel? Probably it's just a corruption of you know the French 
meaning birthday, day of birth, like Natal, right? In, in Hebrew today, it's called Chag HaMolat, right? It's celebrated as the day, it's celebrated as the day of Jesus's birth, which is why you have, you know, in various languages, it's called Natal or Noel. Um, and so that in Jewish sources became known as Nittel, but there are creative etymologies um, as you know that's what we Jews do we do creative etymologies and one of the creative etymologies is Nital as in like uh, um, he was he was hanged um, or it's a Russian tables for something like that or whatever um, you know so that's where the name comes from and you even have a specific Minog Nittel that first appears in the Minhagim of Rav Yitzchak Turnau. He was in uh, he was in Turnau. He's uh, late, late, late Ashkenazic Rishonim, meaning uh, 1400s. Right, the last few generations of Ashkenazic Rishonim, we know of them right, chiefly from their uh, you know many of them recorded Minhagim. Right, so you have this whole circle around Rav Shimon of Neustadt and and uh, you know Maharil. So, and this includes people like Marie Bruna and Truma Sadeshan and Marie Weil and uh, and um, Maharik to an extent is in touch with this with these circles and their and their various students who are recording their their rulings. You have a number of Sifre Minhagim. So one of these Sifre Minhagim is Minhagim of Revising Turnau. He actually is the first uh, Hunga- one of the first Hungarian you know, people that lived in territory that became Hungary, even though, you know, Hungary and Austria, you know, Marash Neustadt, Rav Shimon of, of Neustadt is the, uh, Neustadt is a city and, you know, probably is very close to Vienna, but it's also very close to the Hungarian border. Um, and that whole, uh, the area, it's, it's right near, you know, what I call, here we go. I know some listeners have been anticipating this, right near what we call the Seven Dwarfs. Right, you have the, the, the what's called the Zibin Gemeinden or the Shavaki Lot, right? The seven communities, even though it was not exactly seven, um, you know, there were sometimes more, sometimes less. Uh, in what's today called Burgenland, Burgenland, an area uh, in the border of it's today in Austria, on the border of Hungary. It was at other times until World War One. It was Hungary. There was a uh, um, a local vote, uh, um, a plebiscite, that they decided in um, after World War One to to go to Austria instead of remaining part of Hungary, uh, except for one of the towns. That's uh, Schopron. Schopron became r- remained Hungarian, and so some of the cities are some of these communities are fairly well known. Very old Jewish communities, places like um, places like Matersdorf, places like Eisenstadt, places like uh, one place called Freienkirchen, uh, um, what's the place that's known as Salem, right? You know, like on the Matzahs, Puppet Salem. So Salem of the Matzahs is actually the, the name of this Austrian town is Deutsch, Deutschkreuz, right? German cross, and Jews, for, for, for various reasons, or for obvious reasons, called it Salem, right? Which means cross. Uh, an aside here. 
already Myril talks about, he's the first one to talk about it. Myril is the first one to talk about it. But Jews really don't have problems with places that are named out after saints. There are all kinds of places that are named after saints, um, you know, including places like San Francisco or St. Louis or, uh, um, you know, St. Jürgen, right? Um, one of the main students of Maril, Maril has chuvas on this, but one of the primary students of Maril was Rabzalman of, he's, he's, he's known as Shoti Goar, right? He's Sankt Goar, right? That was the name of the town he was from. It's, in, it's on the Rhine River. Um, and you see it also, you know, there were all kinds of places. Anybody that's from Jergen or Gergen or whatever, and sometimes you'll see it's Sankt Gergen, Sankt Gergen. Those these places are named after St. George. Um, and you see very often in, in Svarim, you know, we're talking about uh, when, even when you're writing a tshuva, when you write to St. whatever, there are plenty of places that are named after saints. Um, there's one place that's not named after a saint, and that's Satmar. Satmar is not named after a saint. That whole thing about, oh, Satmar is named after St. Mary T. Those silly Hasidim, they, you know, they call themselves Satmar after after St. Mary. It's not true. Satmar is not named after St. Mary, never was named after St. Mary. Uh, Mare in Romanian means big. Um, and, and it was, and, and I mean, that's not dispositive, because, you know, it could have been, it was, it was called Satmar before it became a Romanian city, but Satu doesn't mean saint in Hungarian, or in Romanian, or in or in Ukrainian, or in Slovakian, or in Polish. Uh, and Mare or Mar doesn't mean Mary in any of those languages, right? So somebody thought of a joke and said, "Oh yeah, Saint Mary, ha 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 ha, isn't that isn't that great?" Um, and there's also you know people that say, "Oh, that's why they changed the name to Sakmer." Right? There, you, sometimes you'll see Satmer, S-A, instead of S-A, instead of Samach Kuf, Samach Aleph Kuf, Mem Aleph Reish, it's Samach Aleph, I'm sorry, instead of Samach Aleph Tes, it'll be Samach Aleph Kuf, Sakmar, instead of Satmar. Um, and they say that they deliberately corrupted it. Um, that's not true either. <laughs> there are a half a dozen places in the immediate vicinity where you have the exact same thing going on. There's a city in Romania called Bet. Um, Beklan, right? B E C L E A N, right? Like be clean, right? That's how it's spelled. Beklan. Um, but in in uh, Jewish sources, it's spelled with a tes. Bez ein tes. Lamad alav nun. Betlan. Um, the famous Hasidis, Spinke, Spinker Hasidim. Spinka Hasidim are from a city that in today is in Romania, and it's called Betlan. I'm sorry, it's I just, oh, sorry, Sapanta. So Sapanta is Spinka. Again, you have the same TK interchange. Uh, and perhaps one of the famous, most famous communities is literature communities of all times, Brisk, in Polish, I'm sorry, not in Polish, but in um, in Russian, in Belarusian, it's Brest, B-R-E-S-T, Brest Litovsk, is, you know, Brisk Delita, so Brest and Brisk are, you know, so what are you going to do, like the same way that, you know, the, 
<laughs> the same way that the uh, the Satmar Hasidim changed it from Satmar to Sakmar because they didn't want to talk about St. Mary's. You're going to tell that, oh yeah, the, the briskers, they changed it from breast to brisk because they didn't want to have your hurim. It's a bunch of baloney. It doesn't happen. It's not true. Place names are funny like that. Place names, they're different people. They're, they're, you know, in these places in Europe, there are all kinds of different ethnic groups that are all living together and they all have different ways of pronouncing the, the, the names. And the Jews are one of those ethnic groups and sometimes we're closer to one and sometimes we're closer to the other. And that's that. Um, but when it came to like a thing like cross or church, that was the exception. So there are places called... Um, there's a place that's known in 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 Jewish sources as Sedei Lavan, right, which means white field. Right. So in Ukrainian, it's um, Belatserkva, which means white church. Right? White church became white field, and that's the more benign change. Uh, less benign change is that there were people that called it Shvartsatima, uh, right? The uh, Instead of white church, you have black impurity, black defilement. Um, so obviously, you know, this is <laughs> when it came to churches, it was a little bit, it was a little bit different. It was a little bit whatever. When it came to um, when it came to crosses, it was a little bit different. So there, they changed the names to play things like Schweitzatima and De Lavan and uh, and Salem. So, Rav Isaac of Turnau, okay, and let's end that, let's close these parentheses. Rav Isaac of Turnau, uh, he writes in his book that there was a minug that on Nittal, Davka on Nittal, more than, and not on any other day of the year, when they said the, when they were, when they said Aleinu, you know, they would, and they say, Shemesh Takavim Lehevel Harik, they would just get up like a nice, you know, a nice big loogie and actually spit when they said right? as, as if to say that like Dafka, Dafka tonight, Dafka when you know, all these things are going on, um, you know the, the reveling and the, and, the, and the partying and the you know, whatever was going on, they were like, uh-uh that's the first specific Nittle custom. Now, the main Nittle custom is that Torahs, we don't learn Torah on Nittle, but the truth of the matter is that the initial customs, there were two initial customs, okay, and the earliest source that we have, the earliest Jewish source, the earliest halachic sources that we have on this are both from Chavos Yair. was a major, major Achron. Yair Chaim Bachrach um, lived most of his adult adult life in he was in Worms. He spent some time in Mainz. He spent some time in Koblenz, all cities on the Rhine River. He lived in the Rhineland. He was for most of his adult life. He did spend some time in Frankfurt as well, which is also on the Main, which is a tributary of the Rhine. Uh, and he lived his last years and is buried in uh, in Worms, in the famous famous Jewish cemetery in Worms. So 
he addresses this in two places. Both of these places were relatively unknown until recently. Well, not even relatively unknown. Completely unknown until recently. Meaning, the existence of these works... These works were... The, the existence of these works was known. But the works themselves were not known. One is a commentary on Orachayim that he wrote called Makor Chaim. Now, Makor Chaim is a major work and it would be, without a doubt, it would have been one of the Nosei Kalim. Now, here's a funny thing. Just today, somebody asked me a question. Um, you know, how do we know... How is it that you know one posik is accepted and another posik is reject is rejected or doesn't make it into the mainstream? Now sometimes the answer is just pure dumb luck. Rav Yarchaim Bachrach wrote this perush on Orachaim in the late 1600s. He went to Frankfurt to get it printed, and while there in Frankfurt, he sees on the shelf a brand new edition of the Shulchan Aruch with two new commentaries on two commentaries on Aruch, two major commentaries on Aruch. One of them was a little older. That was the commentary of the Taz, um, which his commentary is actually called Mugain David. And then the other one, now the name of this edition was the Magine Eretz. Right, because they had, it had two commentaries that were known as Muggate. One was Muggate David of the Taz. The other one was Muggate of Roham by Vabla Gambiner. Muggate of Roham. The famous Muggate of Roham. We all know the Muggate of Roham. It's the, one of the main those of Caleb on, um, on Orochayim. It influences later Postkim tremendously. Tremendous influence on the on the mission of Rura, of course, and on the Arachashulchan, and on the Primagadim. Primagadim wrote an entire commentary on, on the Magen of Ram. Um, and Rabbi Yarchaim Rahrach gets to Frankfurt to print his commentary and sees that he was scooped. Somebody got there first. And that somebody was the Magen of Ram. And so the the, the Makar Chaim, and he said, most of what I have to say is already included in this, so that's that. He decided, I mean, printing was expensive. He didn't have that much money, and he ended up, because this was already printed, this because, you know, Magine Eretz had already come out, he's, he decided to print some of his father's farm. Um, and that's what he did. Chut I believe. I apologize you have to all rely on my memory. I'm completely, I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't want to overuse this metaphor, but I'm flying blind here. I have no internet access. It's a dark plane. I don't have, like, notes in front of me. I'm monologuing from memory. Um, so if I get a couple of things wrong, uh, I apologize. So, so, by the way, all this all appears in Chavos Yair's introduction. He says, he talks about how he, he wrote an introduction to, um, to his Mekor Chaim, and he ended up not publishing Mekor Chaim, but he published the introduction to Mekor Chaim in Chavos Yair. He published Chavos Yair himself in his lifetime. Um, and he was not the first Meshiv to do that. The first Meshiv to do that 
if I'm not mistaken, is the Maharaj Dam, a hundred years before Chaos Yair, in the late 1500s, and now we're talking late 1600s, um, but, the, but, but not that many people did it before him. Um, you know, take, you know, collect his own, his own chuvas and arrange them and put them into, you know, print them as a sefer. So, he wrote this book called Makor Chaim. It was not published until the 1980s or the early 1990s. Uh, I do not own a copy, but I have seen that in, there's one, you know, and, and it's incomplete, right? Or, or either that or we don't have all of it. Um, and if you if you look at it, he says, you know, he calls it Lel Tuga, right? The, you know, the, the day of dismay or despair or grief. Um, we don't learn Torah, right? And it's it seems fairly clear that he's talking about Christmas. And he talks about Leil Tugo from other sources. And it seems clear that he's talking about Christmas. So that's one source. The other source, and I'm very proud to say, give myself a big pat on the back for this, I discovered this source. Where did I discover this source? Where where is this written? So, at some point, Rav Yair Chaim Bachrach, the the Chavos Yair, wrote a um, an index of his own writings, and like each item, I mean, he had he had uh, I don't know 30, 40 notebooks where he wrote down his chidushim, his drashos, his aros, things that he heard, things that he saw. Um, things that he did, and it was stuff on Kabbalah, and it was stuff on Halacha, and all kinds of stuff on Tefillah. He, he, I mean, and most of these are lost; these are gone. But he wrote an index. He wrote himself an index, right? and you can see his notes. You see, he writes down one thing, and then he'll say, like, he, he took this, and um, you know, he'll write in the margins. Okay, this I printed in Chavos Yar. This I printed in Mark Shisha. This, you know, I wrote in uh, in Makor Chaim. Like he says, like where he turned. Like this was his, let's say, his own personal archive, and he writes, he updates it by saying, this is where I, this is where I, you know, re, as I reorganize my archive, this is where I print things. This is where I put things. There's one line in there, um, and. This is not. I, this doesn't appear anywhere. This has not been printed anywhere. And um, the one line is, and again, I'm quoting this from memory, so it might not be exact. It says Shomat, you know, Masha Amar Gadol Echad. He quotes, you know, a Gadol. Doesn't say who. Shabalel Nittel, and he writes Lel Nittel. Nashim Lo Yardos Litbol. Women don't descend. To, you know, to go to the mikvah. Women don't go to the mikvah, right? What does it mean, descend to go to the mikvah? Well, if you've ever been in worms, you know exactly what that means, right? These things were not these above-ground pools. These were dug deep into the ground. If you go to worms, you can go. You have to, like, walk down 30 stairs to get to the mikvah. It's in, uh, you know, there are, you know, a bunch of other places in Germany where you have the same sort of thing. Um, These... 500-year-old mikvahs, 600, 700, 800-year-old mikvahs that are dug deep into the ground. And, like, you had a, a little house on top, right? But when you go in, you go down, 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 down till you get to the mikvah. Um, 
So Yordo Slipo. Women did not descend, you know, to go to to go to the mikvah on Nittelnacht. So that's the second. So that's the second sort of thing. Now people will say, oh yeah, because it was dangerous to go out. I don't know how dangerous it was to go out. I, again, if you go to Worms. The Jews had their own district of the city called the Yudin Gaza. It was locked at night. Reviel's Bashamish, who was a Shamish there, he was a Shamish there. He wrote the Benhage Kehilas Vermaiza. He was a contemporary of the Chavos Yar. He talks about how every day the Shamish, he, the Shamish, right, would wake up, start waking people up from Minyan, would unlock the doors to the Yudin Gaza on either end. So if he's unlocking the doors, it means that the doors were locked at night. These were, and these are thick walls. The Jews were safe within there as long as the doors were locked. So, I, you know, there were people that say, yeah, that the Minak of Nittal came because people weren't safe. I don't think that's true. There's something else going on. So now the other thing that's going on, we find in sources from soon after. Um, one is, so the, the next source to deal with this, the next source of this is from the Carbonisano. The Carbonisano lived in the early 1700s, so let's say a generation after, um, a generation after uh, the Chavos He was the Rav in Karlsruhe, which is also in the Rhineland, the upper Rhineland, meaning the southern part of the Rhineland. And he also, he writes about the customs of Nittelnacht, and he says that it's a Minhagavelus. Now, I haven't seen this inside. This is quoted by the Nite Gavriel, which is an amazing source for all, you know, for all kinds of minhagim. Nite Gavriel, Rav, uh, Rav Gavriel Zinner's uh, numerous, numerous volume publication. For he's, uh, I believe, he's still alive. Um, I'm fairly certain that he's still alive. He lives in New York, and he's published just these massive tomes um, on all kinds of minhagim from all over the place. On all of the on all of the Yom Tovim, but but also on things like Nittelnacht. So he quotes this. Um, he says that he saw this manuscript of Chavos Yair. I'm sorry, of the the Korban Nisanel, Nisanel Vial, um, that you know he saw it um, in the hands of the person who owns it. He doesn't say who that is, but there are manuscripts from uh, Rav Nisanel Vial that are out there. Um, and, and also of his son, Rav Yedidji Tayavayel. Um, they were well-known Rabbanim who wrote a lot. Karban Nassanel obviously is best known for his commentary on the rush um, and for that famous, famous picture of him wearing a bicorn hat, like one of those, like, uh, you know, 17th, you know, 18th century uh, outfits. Um is a great picture. Anyhow, so he also mentions this. And then he also have it mentioned in the Chasm Sofer, but not the Chasm Sofer Bishmo. Chasm Sofer is not saying it on it about himself. He's saying it about that he heard from two people. Who did he hear from? He heard from his father. His father died when he was very, very young. His father died, I believe, before he was bar mitzvah, so that that would put it at uh, something like um, Chasam Sofer was born in 1762, so that would make it out of 1775. His father died, but he heard he, he, around then he heard from his father that 
the minhag, not that there's a minhag not to learn on nittel, that was, everybody knew, um, but that the minhag not to learn the nittel, on nittel is because of a minhag avelus, like, just like an avel doesn't learn, so too somebody who's, um, you know, so, so too nittel not to say yom avelus, like a tishabov, we don't learn. Um, and the other source is Rav Nassan Adler, who was his Rebbe Mufak, uh, the Rebbe Mufak of L'chasim Sofer, and he also reports that we don't learn because it's a Minagavelus. So you have, I mean, if you think about it, if you, like, I, I can't show you the map, but basically you have the first appearances, the first record of these Minhagim, of the Minag not to learn and not to go to the Mikvah. And Jewish sources are from the last years of the 1600s and the first years uh, for the last years of the 1600s until the mid to late 1700s right in those 75 years let's say between I don't know 1690 and, and 1765 or whatever it is yeah, maybe expanded a little bit more you know that's where the minute grows up and that's where we first hear the the record of the minhag and that's also where um and and, and they're all in the same place right mines i'm sorry worms and karlsruhe and frankfurt these are all in the upper rhine these are this is now the upper rhine the rhineland the upper rhineland that is the cradle of ashkenaz right you know that's where that's what the Baliatosvos were, that, or many of the Baliatosvos were. That was the, when we talk about Ashkenaz, that's what we talk about. That was the original heartland of Ashkenaz. So this is not some minog that grew up amongst, you know, it's not from Hasidim, it's not from Litvaks. This minog grew up, this minog developed in the heartland of Ashkenaz. Why Dafka there? So there are different theories. There are a couple of papers, one from Mark Shapiro, one from a woman whose name escapes me right now. Um, they both talk about the various sorts of, you know, that during the weeks leading up to Christmas, there were all kinds of um, demonic sources that were, you know, demonic beings that were seen to be out and about. Um, and some of them are, some of them are highly entertaining. Um, and, uh, you know, and they, they were considered dangerous. The... Um, and there are also, according to these, we don't have internal Jewish sources that talk about what's going on, but we have external sources, meaning we have um, Christian or, you know, apostate Jewish ethnographers, right? not academic ethnographers, people that, like, you know, want to wanna show how weird or zany or corrupt or whatever the Jews are going into Jewish communities and saying this is what we saw this is what those crazy Jews do and they talk about Menhagim like this is what the Jews do on Christmas Eve um, and there are I mean those are the first attestations as you know to the extent that they're they're completely credible obviously they have to be taken with a grain of salt um, that there that Jews did something a little different on Christmas Eve um, but when we talk, when it comes to internal sources, these are the sorts of things that are that are um, it's these four sources. Um, 
sorry, these resources, Khafuzgayer, Qasim Sofer, and Corbin Nassano. Um, and they're all, they all, it seems from all of them that it's a Nihuga Velus. And, um, and it seems to have grown up in that area because you had like these folkloristic, German folkloristic, non-Jewish folkloristic customs um, and beliefs about the sorts of, you know, demonic forces that were going around and the demonic forces that were, uh... I'm sorry, that's what the, the, that's what these, these books, these, you know, these, the, the scholars that are discussing these ethnographies are saying that the Jews internalized these beliefs about the, uh, about the, uh, the demonic forces that were out and about. Uh, I'm a little bit skeptical of that because, like I said, the sources all indicate that it's, you know, it grew up as a custom of Avelos. Um, so maybe there were, you know, attacks, who knows. Um, you also have some weird beliefs going on, and like that's, like these weird, like that, uh, you know, that uh, the ghost of Jesus is going around in the, in the sewers on Christmas Eve, and so that it's dangerous to go to the, to go alone to the base of Merchatz. That's not, you don't have that in those original ones, in those first ones, um, unless that's how you want to read the uh, Women Can't Go to the Mikvah. Um, but, uh, yeah, but that's, um, again, the, these, the original sources seem to indicate that the first, the initial sources seem to indicate that this is all about in Hagia Velus. Um, the, uh, That, that other other beliefs about you know going around in the in the in the sewers Jesus in the in the, in the sewage pipes it, it's funny that that theme was actually sort of picked up in a very scatological way by South Park the it, I mean I don't know if they did it on purpose but if they did it's absolute genius the you know the, there's a whole episode about how like the you know the, the Jewish character conjures this uh, this 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 thing called Mr. Hanky the Christmas Pooh, and it, it's it's really it's kind of it's kind of gross, um, but it's also like it, it's actually rooted in some of the sources, which is kind of zany, and kind of amazing. One last source that I want to discuss is a letter that was discovered by Professor Mark Shapiro an important letter, an exchange of letters between Ravalazar Fleckless, uh, who was one of the major abundant in, um, in Prague in the early 1800s, Helmut Mufaka of the Yehuda, and Carl Fisher, who was the government censor for many, many years. They had a very interesting relationship that I would like to explore another time, um, especially since, you know, one's named Lazar, the other one's named Fisher, my name's Ellie Fisher, so hey kind of drawn to this. Uh, so, Mark Shapiro discovered in, in the Prague University Library an exchange where uh, Fisher writes to Reflechelis, say, what's this I hear about Mittelnacht, right? I, I heard that there are Jews that don't learn on Mittelnacht because, you know, it's, uh, you know, because they're mocking Jesus or because they're, Jesus and whatever, and Rafaelazar Fleckless writes back. Now it's interesting because he, I mean, he's a talent of the Nosy Yehuda, so he says first, 
this doesn't appear anywhere in Shaz and Poskim, right? Which that's a difficult no that you to ask type saying. Like, this stuff that comes in, all this folk custom, you know, we don't buy it. He says, and don't worry, the people that don't learn on Nittelnach, <laughs> they don't learn anything else. They don't learn any other night either. Why is it that, you know, people play cards on Nittelnacht or, you know, party on Lail, on, you know, on Jews party on Christmas Eve? Um, it's because they're, what's it called? It's because they, they don't have work the next day because everybody's off. So if they're off, they're going to party the night before. But believe me, it's not because of anything Christian. It's just, you know, it's, it, this is like the equivalent of, you know, going out for Chinese food on Christmas Eve, right? It's like, well, because they have off the next day, so you can do something nice. And there's really not much else to do. The only restaurants that are open are the Chinese restaurants because they don't celebrate Christmas either, so let's go there, right? Which, by the way, that's not a fruit custom at all because, you know, the first kosher Chinese restaurants didn't open until, like, I don't know, the 1970s, the 1980s, right? Places like Moshe Peking. Uh, I'm from Baltimore, so the first one was Chaps. Um, you know, and that was also that was the 1980s. So uh, like that, that, that's that's that whole eating uh, eating Chinese food on Christmas Eve. That's not a that's not a from custom. That's like it's eating trafe Chinese on Christmas Eve. That that was the custom. Was eat trafe on Christmas Eve. Okay, so like, for those of us who keep kosher, that's not the minute. Um, so back to Reflectless. So Reflectless says, like, so these people are just like, they're, you know, a bottle Torah. They're, they're partying because they have an opportunity to party, but it's not, you know, it's not a religious thing at all. Um, is Reflectless Reflectless being disingenuous? I don't think so. I think, first of all, I think that that's what he held, meaning the whole Shasta Postcom thing, that is very typical of, um, you know, he probably knew that there was such a custom that, you know, people don't learn on Nittle not taking this. It's very unlikely that he wouldn't know about it at all. Um, but at the same time, it's also very likely that, you know, what he thought about it is that it's a bunch of baloney because, you know, that's what he thought about any customs that came that originated later, that originated uh, from sources other than Shasta It's potentially what he thought about, you know, uh, you know, people that kept homers that are rooted in Tzavar of Yehuda Chassid or, you know, or, or any other um, or, 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 or Alpin Kabbalah, for that matter. Um, he was not, you know, he was, uh, you know, his his version of Judaism was, uh, of Halacha, was somewhat purist, or even puritanical. You know, it was Shas and Poskim and nothing else. Um, and again, this is not, he didn't originate that. He was a student of the Nod Yehuda, and that's what, that was the Nod Yehuda. And in some ways, he was, he was, Potentially a little bit more extreme than Nodi Yehuda, a little bit less politic than Nodi Yehuda. Nodi Yehuda, you know, he understood that, you know, his uh, halakhic positivism was going to run up against communal norms, and so he had to pick and choose his battles. Well, Blood of Luck was, was not, never was, the rub of Prague, and so he didn't have to pick and choose his battles, and he could be more farbrent about it, right? You know, like a lot of times, the most farbrent people are the people that don't have to play the politics. Sometimes they can be more farbrent because they don't have to play the politics, and sometimes, because they're far brent, they don't get the positions that require some, you know, political acumen. You know, think of Yaakov Emden, right? He never really had a major rabbinic position because, I mean, because the guy was, you know, constantly picking fights. Right? So that's not a good way to, you know, it's not a good way to run a rabbinic career. You're constantly picking fights, you're going to be, you're going to be fired. You know, that's how it goes. You have to learn to 
have to learn to, to be politic about it. For all other flaggers, he was not Bezin. But he was not the rough product. Okay. Compare Revelezer Fleckus in this regard with the Hasim Silver. So they're contemporaries. They, they're both, their main periods of activity are both, you know, they, they overlap. Revelezer Fleckus, I think, died in 1826, which is a good 13 years before Hasim Silver. But in the early 1800s, the first two decades of the 1800s, 18, uh, you know, 1800 to 1820, let's say, they're both at the peak of their careers, right? Um, Ravalazar Fleckless has this minhag, and he says, this minhag is baloney, this minhag is nothing, right? We don't hold to this, I learned to run, because we need no biggie, nothing, right? He was Litvish, we would, we, would, we would call him Litvish in that way, I mean, he was very bohemian, and he was very much a Talmud of Yehuda, but we would call that Litvish. Um, so fair, on one hand, he receives this minute from his Rebbe, and he receives this minute from uh, from his father, and he's aware that this is a minute of this minute was in, in the German heartland, in the in the Kehilos Kedoshos of of Ashkenaz, Frankfurt, Karlsruhe, Worms. So he, and, and this is very much who he is, right? The the like almost he. And I use this word specifically. He romanticizes the old Ashkenaz, which in his day was starting to, you know, he moved out. So he romanticizes it, and he also, it started to fray, right? You know, you think about Frankfurt in the time of Shamshrofal Hirsch, which is a half a century later, it's like, you know, Shamshrofal Hirsch is like this, like, like the, there were barely any from Jews holding on. It's a little bit of a myth, meaning there were plenty of Shomer Shabbos Jews, just only a few of them separated from the main community. Um, maybe we'll get to that another time. But uh, but the point is that there was definitely a major, you know, reform or reformist element or a non-observant element um, that had penetrated. Like the you know the, the old Ashkenaz was dying, and Chasm Sofer knew it. Um, living in a period of romanticism, right? You think about, you know, the people that are romanticizing, you know, the, the neo-Gothic, the, um, you know, looking back to the Middle Ages, the early modern period, and, you know, they, they think, they think of it in romantic terms. They think of it, you know, like, this is our greatness, right? You have the, you know, the Brothers Grimm going around collecting folk tales, you know, of, you know, from, from the German countryside, because they think, you know, this is, you know, they're, they, they, they see glory in that. So Hasim Sofer is of this time, he's of this period. Um, and here I'm, I'm channeling, um, uh, you know, much of what has been written on the Hasim Sofer by um, Professor Mohud Kahana, Mori Varabi, and, um, you know, about the, the, the Hasim Sofer as a romantic. So you have... Hasim Sofer, you know, he's not going to he's not going to jettison this custom. He's not going to say that this custom is a bunch of baloney because that's just not who the Hasim Sofer was. That couldn't be who the Hasim Sofer was, right? He was very much about preserving um, Minhagim, but he was also very creative. I mean, he was brilliant and he was creative, so he couldn't accept the idea that it was from Avelos. Like, what are you being, Miss Abel? What are you being, you know? What are you What are you mourning? That somebody was born? You know, like why are we like? just a guy, right? Like, what, what's what's going on here? Um, so he rereads the whole custom. He says, no, no. The custom 
was never that it goes, you know, that you go, uh, that, that you don't learn all night. Because it was that you don't learn, you don't learn half, the first half of the night. Well, now, I mean, people, most people went to sleep. So, custom this, custom that. Most people went to sleep. And so, the custom was, you didn't learn the night, and, and then you went to sleep, and that was the end of the custom. Um, but, Chacham Silver's time, he says, the custom was that you didn't learn till the, until midnight, right? And, and a, a big thing that happened in between the beginning of the custom and Chacham Silver's time is that, you know, coffee is now out there. Um, you know, so people did stay up late and people did stay up past midnight. So the Chacham Silver shows up and he says, the minig is not to not learn the whole night. The minig is not to learn until Chatzos. Why Chatzos? Well, because that's when they go daven. They have midnight mass. So what's going to happen is all the Christians are going to go to church at midnight. And all the Jews are going to be in their beds sleeping. And it's going to be a tremendous kitruk against Klal Yisrael. It's going to look bad for the bad optics for the Jews. Right? Christians davening. Jews sleeping comfortably in their beds. You know, Kaddish Baruch looks down on his world and says, who's, who, 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 who you know, or, or, or you know, the, the, It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a lapse in piety. It's a moment at which, you know, the, the piety of the Jews is exceeded by the piety of the Christians. So the Chassam Sofer says, therefore, the Minog was... Now, he said the Minog was, but in essence, he's reinventing, he's reshaping the Minog. The Minog was that you stay up, you don't start learning until midnight, right? So in order to make sure that people would start learning at midnight, they said no learning until midnight. So the first half of the night, do what you want. Play games, do this, do that. Fine. But comes midnight, the clock strikes midnight, all the Christians go to church, the Jews have to start learning. And that's how he, you know, and this is very apropos of Chasm Sofer, right? The Chasm Sofer is, on one hand, he's, he's taking, you know, he's inheriting, and he's not getting rid of these minhagim that he inherits. Um, but at the same time, he is rethinking them and reshaping them, you know, to, uh, you know, in a way that, to him, makes more sense. And it's a very different sort of approach than Ruffalo's or Flackless, who's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, Shasaposkim, we can ignore it. So, we haven't gotten into the Hasidim, and we're not going to get into the Hasidim, because... You know, that stuff is kind of known, right? The, the chess playing and the toilet paper tearing and playing Risk and whatnot. All those things are, you know, that, that's that's what's out there. Um, it's this other part, this, you know, that, that the Minhagim of Nittal actually, actually begin, the, the Minhagim of Nittal actually begin in the Rhineland, in the cradle of Ashkenaz, and, you know, a hundred years before there is such a thing as Hasidus, well, that, I think, to many is a little bit of a, of a chidush. Um, and that is the topic, that was the topic, that has been the topic of our little deep dive tonight down the rabbi hole.